You're listening to Shrink the Virus, a weekly podcast that explores the psychology of everyday life during the pandemic, hosted by two psychiatrists, Steve Allen and Rob Seltzer. Shrink the Virus is brought to you by Melbourne independent community media organisation, Triple R. Check out the Shrink the Virus podcast page on the Triple R website and on Facebook. And don't forget, you can financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber at any time. More details at rrr.org.au. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Shrink the Virus with myself, Steve Allen, and my good friend, Rob Seltzer. Uh, on the episode today, we're very excited. We've got uh, someone who I've spoken to a few times on uh, radiotherapy on Through Triple R and on the ABC. His name is Professor Doug Hilton, and he is the director of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, Australia's oldest and more or less largest medical research centre. Um, they're world experts and uh, in leading the fight against a range of things, and their main areas are cancer, mm-hmm. immune disorders, and infectious diseases. So two out of the three of those, immune disorders and infectious diseases, are right down the path of COVID and the pandemic. Um, but before we get to uh, Professor Doug Hilton, Rob, how are you, my friend? Good, mate. Um, I've been doing lots of writing. Now, mm. you you are a writer, I know, and I once picked up your very expensive bike with my pinky. It was so light. I've got a 20-year-old pushy and um, I just uh, had some work, like it broke and I had it fixed up. And now it's riding like a dream. So I've just been loving these last couple of days, beautiful sunshine here in Melbourne and um, riding. So, you know, I'm getting fit. Nice work. It's time to get fit. Now that we can come out of, uh, now that, you know, we've jumped down a stage, it's absolutely time to uh, get fit again. Now, I know you've been working really, really hard, mate. I know that. But you've also been keeping abreast of some of the uh, press releases, particularly to do with mental health. It's some really interesting news that has just come out. Yeah, in fact, it's important that we do our timestamp because we always love to let you know when we're talking. We're talking on Friday, the 15th of May. And the big bit of news, I suppose, it's, you know, I focused on today, obviously, was um, mental health. And so um, uh, Scott Morrison, oh, about a week ago now, released federal guidelines around mental health and what they were doing and made a particular focus on mental health during the pandemic. And Victoria came out with their plan today. As everyone will know, we had a Royal Commission, uh, uh, it's still ongoing, but a lot of the, inf- a lot of the uh, hearings were last year and they've um, got a whole lot of stuff. So the Minister for Mental Health in Victoria, Martin Foley, today announced an additional almost $20 million in funding to deliver essential reforms, um, really to uh, Uh, work on mental health in general, but in particular to, as they said, to help flatten the potential second curve of mental ill health that Mm. could come following COVID. Mm. So they've got a whole lot of things. Do you want me to run through just a couple of the highlights? Um, So another um, five odd million for 24 new hospital in the home beds. So more Victorians can access specialist mental health care in their own homes. So all the various support networks. And, you know, I was involved in that for years. For about 15 years, I ran an emergency psych service that included uh, a crisis team to go to people's homes. They're so important. Mm. They need to deliver stuff over the telephone, stuff in people's homes, as well as having the clinics and the hospital beds. So that's um, fantastic. Also, some you know they'd already announced 170 new acute mental health beds, but they've they announced today 15 um, new beds for young people in Victoria. We mm-hmm. always have Good. a shortage of beds for young people, so that's a great thing. Um, you know, there were a couple of the big things. They also got a program that they talked about called the Hospital Outreach Post Suicide and Engagement Program called the Hope. 
Hope program, mm-hmm. and that's a program to make sure people who have had um, some sort of suicide attempt get follow up after they leave hospital, mm-hmm. so that you know they don't get lost in the maze that is the mental health system. Mm-hmm. So you know there was a whole lot of bits and pieces. You can read more in the newspaper, but I thought it was a great uh, positive step, and it's just fantastic that the Victorian government is backing up their promises, even yep. though yep. COVID is dominating our thinking right now. And pretty soon we're hoping to get a representative from the mental health branch in Victoria to take us through some of those changes. We'll let you know. Yeah, 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 we've got someone lined up. But today we've got a super, super duper special guest. Independent Melbourne Radio 3RRR. G'day, Doug. G'day, Rob. G'day, Steve. G'day, Doug. Good to see you again. I haven't seen you for a little while, but we've spoken many times over the years, including on Triple R. Indeed, one of my favourite shows. Radiotherapy, 10 a.m. on Sundays. Look at me sneaking in an ad already. I, I thought it was your <laughs> I thought it was your favourite show. Not one of. <laughs> oh, he's got signed Einstein a go go. You've been on favourites. You've been on Einstein many times too, haven't you? I have. Yeah. Now, thanks for doing this, uh, Doug, because it is a beautiful, beautiful sunny day outside. And that was a great day. And you're inside doing a podcast with uh, Shrink the Virus and two psychiatrists. So thanks very much. We've got so many questions to ask you. In fact, when Steve and I were preparing the show, um, we were at odds at who is going to get to ask you questions. So I might go first, um, if that's okay. Fire away. So you're director of WeHi. What kind of research is going on right now about COVID? So we, we have turned our research efforts to COVID and it's been, um, it's been really inspiring the way researchers who've never previously worked on infectious disease mm. have teamed up with our infectious disease researchers to bring a really multidisciplinary um, effort to COVID. Um, you know, and, and people have done it so wholeheartedly and so collaboratively, not just not just within Weehai, but across Melbourne. I think it's it's one of those fantastic ingredients of Melbourne biomedical research that um, institutions are not so much uh, rivals and competitors, but are absolutely you know teammates in a bigger game. That is so um, true, isn't it? It yeah, it be. is, and, and it's not something we should ever take for granted because, at least in my experience, it doesn't happen to the same extent in other states. Mm. It's a really special part of, um, you know, the, 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 the Melbourne culture of science. Yeah. Well, you did a lot of work. Um, you've done a lot of work over the last decade, really, with the other um, senior people around the major research institutes to create these whole research precincts where everyone works together. And, you know, you're sitting, what, about 100 metres away from the Doherty, a couple of hundred metres away from the Murdoch, up over the road from Melbourne University. It must just be a wonderful environment to have so many experts all within about a kilometre, you know, within a square kilometre. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, if you can't if you can't do medical research in an institute in that environment, then you can't do it anywhere. Mm. It is just the it is the absolute sweet spot. But mm. also, we have really great links with places like the Burnett Institute, which is a little way across Melbourne in the Alfred Hospital precinct. Yep. So you know that there's it. It is easier if you can collaborate without your coffee going cold. But even with people so far south of the Yarra, like like the Alfred Hospital, we can still work with them too. So uh, the Yiddish expression is to talk tuckless. What exactly, getting down to fine grain, what exactly are you focusing on at the WeHi when it comes to COVID? 
So look, there's probably three or four different strands to the research that we're doing. Um, we, we're leading on a clinical trial, which is a prophylactic clinical trial using hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. And hydroxychloroquine was Donald Trump's sort of molecule of the week for a, a little while. Um, but the studies that were being, were being advocated there were um, testing hydroxychloroquine in desperately ill patients, you know, patients that were being wheeled into ICU. And that's a really tough ask with any viral disease. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess um, the work's being led by Mark Pellegrini, who's an infectious diseases physician, and Ian Wicks, who's uh, a rheumatologist, head of rheumatology at RMH. And their, their view was it may be much easier to use hydroxychloroquine to p- prevent infection in people that are at risk. And the group that they were really keen to focus on were healthcare workers. So we have a, we have a trial that um, I think will recruit its first patients next week. Um, and as we get these little outbreaks like at the Meatworks, then of course there's going to be continuous exposure of, health, of certain healthcare workers to the patients that are infected, then we'll enrol those patients in a proper placebo-controlled trial over the next few months. Clive Palmer must be breathing a sigh of relief having put, you know, the triple page ads in the newspaper that he bought 30 million doses of hydrochloroquine. So I hope that trial works out. How long will it take to, to get a result on that? Oh, look, it depends on recruitment. Um, if we were in New York, we could probably finish recruitment in, you know, a couple of weeks, given the level of, of coronavirus infection there. In many ways, thankfully, it'll take a little longer to recruit um, the at-risk uh, healthcare workers in Australia, but I think that's just a great position to be in. It's also really interesting. They'd like to they'd like to extend that trial to, um, I guess, the contacts of cases that are found in the big diagnostic uh, test suite. So you know, a- again, as we've done in Victoria, there'll be people, for example, at the McDonald's in Faulkner who've been exposed to somebody who's now tested positive. And that's a great opportunity also, if you can get in really quickly, of trying a prophylactic treatment. What about in the immunology um, sphere? Because WEHI has obviously got an amazing reputation in uh, studying the immune system and various aspects of it. And one of the things we keep hearing is that part of the problem with the actual disease, the COVID, is that as well as the early phase where people get all the flu-like symptoms, there's a later phase where it appears they get some sort of immunological reaction that might be a little bit over the top that for the yeah. person and might be causing as, as much harm as good. Are you, are you in that sphere too? Yeah, so we really... we. We are really interested in that cytokine storm. It's sort of, it's a little bit like septic shock in a way, and a different, you know, obviously a different etiology. But it looks like the, the the body uses a whole set of messengers that it sends out from cells to communicate around the body. And so, if you get a if you get a cut that's getting infected, what you want to be able to do is to send the messages from the cut um, out to the body to recruit the cells in there to protect that protect that injury. And that's really good, but you don't want to be overwhelmed by those signals. And when those hormones, when those messengers signal too much, then it can have just disastrous effects of sort of uncontrolled inflammation throughout the body. And at least in part, that seems to be what some patients that that have COVID-19 come down with. So there's a lot of interest to ask how can we attenuate that response so the patient's you know, don't have this sort of hyper-inflammatory response. You know, can, 
Can I go on a slight left field? Do you ever, you know, being an expert in all this, do you ever think about how society works and whether it works at an immunological level as, as well? Like, for example, you know, we send out messages that there's this disease that's affecting individual and then the whole society reacts in a certain way and some, and that includes things like the economic responses, the political fallout, um, the mental health fallout, all these different things. And some people are obviously arguing that our response to COVID to the pandemic is um, over the top. And and like, for example, certain um, presidents tweeting out that you shouldn't take notice. Uh, uh, can you look at the an immune response? I mean, obviously you can't, but do you ever wonder whether society reacts in a similar way that cells react? I reckon cells are much more rational. <laughs> <laughs> well, cells follow know. clearer rules. Yeah, that, that's very no, no, true. No, it's a, but it's a, it's a, look, it's a, really, it's a really interesting question. And I got asked by, um, I've been having lots of, of sort of off-mic conversations with Raf Epstein off oh, and yeah. on for the last, last few weeks. Really, he's, you know, he's our guest next week. Guy. Yeah, he's, he's our guest next week. Exactly oh, is he? Right. Yeah. Oh no. Anyway, I think he's a wonderful guy. He's really, I, I, I really like the way he deals with issues. Yeah. And he asked me a question maybe eight or ten weeks ago, kind of when we were at that um, pivot point. You know, where we going to where we going to go down a sort of a, a northern Italy, New York road? Was it all going to get out of control? Or were we going to be able to get on top of it? And you can, if you remember back then, there were a lot of voices saying we haven't gone hard enough. Yeah, we need yep. to lock it down. We, you know, we need to be doing more testing. And there was a, there was a, there was a sort of a dichotomy among experts. You know, Norman Swan was advocating that we go harder. The mm. chief medical officers were saying no, we've got it under control. Mm. And Raf said, "Do you have?" He asked me, "Do you have faith in the system?" Yep. Which is a really Great interesting question, mm. and and well, I had this really immediate response, but it was a very visceral response. It was kind of my heart and my gut, and I said absolutely yes. And then you know, and then we talked for a bit longer, and and then hung up. And then for the next month, I've been thinking, you know, why, why, why did I feel this sense of confidence and optimism in the way we were dealing with things? And I, and I think this gets back to the too little, too much, slow, too fast, too slow. And it was that we, the firstly, almost unbelievably, the pollies were listening, whether they were from the left or the right, to the experts. Yep. And if, you know, if only this would happen on all issues. So that was really good. And that gives you confidence because, because people who had previously dismissed science were, you know, absolutely not going rogue on their own. They were saying, let's listen to the, listen to the advice, we're following medical advice. So that was really good. But we also had this, you know, we, we live in a wonderfully open democracy and the fact that there were these dissonant voices that were aired, that were credible, that were being mm. respected and that the chief medical officers, who are our colleagues and who we know are really decent, thoughtful people, were able to take that on board, you know, modify their approaches without looking weak or looking like they were flippy-flopping, you know, and that we've been able to bring all of these voices together and navigate this pretty sensible course. Mm. Like how, how amazing is that?
Yeah, I agree. It's, it's amazing. And my sense too is, you know, whether or not you've got confidence in the system, there's one thing I think we can say 100% for sure. The current system we've got is the best approach. Like this, you wouldn't want to go down any other approach at the moment other than a, an expert-led panel no. advising the politicians with the right mix of people, epidemiologists, infectious diseases, researchers, yeah. and then all the other experts, economists, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Mental health professionals. Yeah. And, yeah. Hey, wasn't it great to see yes. the mental health plan rolled out yes. today? You know? Yes. I've, I've been reading that with a fine tooth comb all morning looking at it. looks, it, you know, I think it's, uh, there's a hell of a lot of promise there. I'm very excited. Yeah. Um, Doug, do you reckon this will have long-term implications on the relevance of science and research to society and, and and what shape would that form do you think yeah look you, you know it, it it that's part of a really interesting more general question isn't it and that is you know we we've shaken our thinking up in ways we could not have conceived four months ago you know there are a whole whether it's whether it's online teaching or our willing our willingness to work from home or you know uh uh the, the the regard we give science, we, you know, there's all of these changes that have happened and things that we couldn't have conceived of us embracing as a community three months ago that we've embraced. Mm -hmm. And I think we, you know, on a whole lot of issues and, and the, the importance of science is one of them, we just all hope we don't go back to business as usual. You know, and there's a whole lot of things around social services and social support and, and all, you know, where... Whereas a community, we're thinking, wow, we have taken some steps forward. Our political leaders are listening to science. Hmm. How do we maintain that credibility? How do we not overplay our hand? How do we keep the confidence of, of the community in science? How do we capitalise on this once in a 70-year opportunity? So it's fantastic. So that's a, a couple of really good questions. How do you maintain the confidence and faith of the community in science right now when there is so much uncertainty around COVID. Can I give an example too? You know, I got a question <laughs> on that very topic. I got a question this morning. There was an article in the paper about how $10 million was spent on some dodgy um, COVID tests. The, the question came from an important source, my dad. And uh, he was, um, you know, he was expressing, you know, what's going on? How can you waste $10 million? And, an uh, outrage. And, you know, and, the, and, you know, I was explaining to him the point that, you know, in the heat of the moment, you've got to go down a number of different paths and not all of them will work, etc. And so I think Rob's right, you know, and you're right, there will be some backlash because not everything's going to go well. So back to the question, how do you maintain well, that confidence? Well, that's science, you know. That's science. The kind of analogy, it's, it's a really interesting analogy, that the path analogy, you know, and, and I think, you know, I hope what we also appreciate with our leaders is that, that they're often in invidious positions. There is, you know, and I, f I feel this very acutely as the leader of an organisation of 1,100 people which is, you know, a tiny microcosm of leading the country, right? And, you know, what I feel like a lot of times is you're in a position, you have to choose a path, all of the paths have dog shit on them and you're just asking how can I keep it on the bottom of my shoe? How can I not fall face first in the dog shit? You know you're <laughs> so you're never, you know never going to get to the end of the path without some dog shit on your shoe somewhere. And that's the choice we make as leaders sometimes. You've just got to try and choose the least worst path. 
And I, I don't think as a community we quite understand that concept of risk, that when you're making a decision, there are, as you say, multiple paths, each with their risks. And in retrospect, it's obvious which path we should have taken. But in the heat of the moment, you're balancing so many different risks. Yeah, I hope people maintain a little bit of faith. What about the yeah, impact? And a little bit of tolerance, a little bit of tolerance of the fact that when our pollies make decisions in good faith with the evidence that it's not always turning out roses, right? It's not always going to turn out perfect. It will never turn out perfectly. So, you know, let's be, let's be, let's be much more tolerant of our political leaders making decisions, knowing that almost every decision they make will have a downside. Yeah, yeah very much so. If, if we bring it back to science, Doug, and just as an example, we've seen so many different mathematical models of what the outbreak might look like. In fact, <laughs> I was just listening yesterday to a podcast about this uh, scientist who's almost doing like a meta-analysis on all the different models, trying to bring it into a unified model. I mean, you know, so one day the public might hear this prediction, the next day they might hear that prediction because it's different models. How do you how do you communicate that difficulty to the public at large? I'm not a, you know, I'm not a theoretician. So, you know, I've always been a really kind of empirical scientist. Um, so I like to see data and, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I like to see the trends and, and those sort of things. So I'm not a modeler and I don't begin to understand beyond the fact that models should be iterative and self-improving based on the data Mm. And, and feedback, mm. um, I, I'm actually, you know, and that's one of the, I think that's one of the real challenges with explaining climate change science is that every model, every, you know, every model has slightly different predictions, which is completely understandable and it's all good science, I'm sure, but it's very hard to then articulate, you know, why is this model better than this model? What do we expect? And it becomes sort of consensus science. Mm. And I think the thing that, I, I, again, it comes back to something we discussed earlier, and that is what's been really good about the COVID modelling and the epidemiology has been, you know, people have been willing to challenge each other respectfully in the media as, as experts. And, we, you know, and we've, we've understood what the strengths and the weaknesses of the model as those sort of experts have battled it out, and we have navigated it a middle ground i think it's going to be there's going to be enough work to keep the epidemiologists busy for the next 40 years analyzing the 213 separate experiments that have been done in the 213 countries that now have covid simultaneously mm. like how good a piece of science is that mm. the mm. experiment that they've done in the us which is probably 50 experiments in 50 different states how good will it be analysing what's worked and what hasn't and the disasters of sort of libertarian governors releasing the restrictions early versus the Democrats in Maine? And, like, that is, that is science fun. Hmm. Yeah. So it's a bit, a bit human tragedy. Yeah, uh, it's well. We've, we've talked, you know, we've talked about that a few times. How you know, for people like us, on the one hand, we see the human tragedy, in, you know, right in front of us in the, all the hospitals. On the other hand, it's 
it's one of the most interesting things that's happened in science and healthcare from a, uh, an intellectual point of view in, in decades. And that brings me to the question about, you know, what will be the impact on science? What will be the impact on funding? Will maybe, will there be negative impacts? Will some of the funding all be directed in one area at the expense of other areas? Mm. What are your thoughts on how science will adapt to the so, pandemic? So Steve's basic question is, should we switch to career, careers now into infectious disease and immunology? It's too late for us. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. you know, look, I, I think what, you know, I hope one of the impacts is that we, we learned a let we learned the lessons of the pandemic. Like this, it was, you know, all the, you know, everybody's talking once in a hundred years, once in a gener, you know, actually we had multiple dry runs for this. We had SARS one, we had MERS, we had the. H1N1 influenza 10 years ago or whenever it was, we, you know, we've had these every five to 10 years for the last 30 years. We just were complacent. They fizzled out and therefore we thought, oh, you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be like the Spanish flu again. So, you know, the idea that this is some black swan infectious diseases event that we could never have predicted is just nonsense. So what I really hope is in 18 months' time when the economy starts improving and our superannuation looks a bit better and house prices start going up again, we don't all get complacent and forget about coronaviruses and forget about pandemic responsiveness. So I'd really like, I, I love the idea that there will be some seriously long-term funding for pandemic preparedness. You know, I guess the other thing that I'm really interested in is... You know, we think about the life sciences in silos. Mm-hmm. You know, so my, my institute doesn't work on climate change. It doesn't work on agriculture and food security. It doesn't work on viruses that, that flip easily from animals and are mainly veterinary illnesses into humans. You know, it doesn't work on, the, on you know, environmental degradation. I'm a, you know, we're a medical research institute. We have faculties at Melbourne University. We have a group that work on agriculture science, a group that works on forestry, group that does some environmental research. So we never think about life as it's unified and and interlinked. And I think, again, that whole pandemic preparedness, and we see that in the sort of discussions about the wet markets, we need to think about life in a slightly more holistic way. Wouldn't it be good to have a One Health program or One Health Institute rather than a whole lot of MRIs that focus on different individual diseases. So I think there's some opportunities to think differently about science. And I know the Wellcome Trust, I think they're starting to think about that. Your lips to God's ears, Doug. I mean, that, that Steve and I talk about this all the time, that it's not just medical research that suffers from silos. It's, it's a much bigger issue than that. No. It's government as well. I mean, we've got you know, a department of health and a department of education and a department yeah. of agriculture. And yet those... And a department of mental health sometimes. Yeah, you know, yes. it, it all needs to be um, yeah. unsiloed. The systems yeah. and ways you do that are going to be complex. But until you do that, you're not going to address some of the key system systems issues, which yeah. which you just brought up before. You're, you're both wealthy doctors, I know. And so, look, if you have any <laughs> well, of your is. wealthy doctor friends who... <laughs> you know, maybe know Gina Reinhardt or have a billion dollars in their back pocket. If they if they want to set up a One Health Institute and they need a sort of middle-aged white director like myself, just give me a call. You can oh. give me my phone number, Steve. 
I'll just check my bank account because I can't. I've got you. a feeling. I, it could, I think there was a billion that I wasn't sure what to do with. Hey, <laughs> what behind about, the couch, Stephen? Can, can I take you down a level to the researchers? Because yeah. you know, certainly in my hospital, we've had a lot of stress um, from staff facing it, and one of the groups that's really struggled has been the researchers because obviously a lot of them had to start working from home. It interrupted a lot of experiments. Um, researchers often go year to year on funding. How's the um, how are the researchers coping with uh, the pandemic? Uh, look, it, it's really it's really interesting, um, and and I think there's no single answer. It, it's a it's very it depends on the granular circumstances of the researcher. For some researchers, they've been able to work really easily from home. So we have some we have mathematicians, bioinformaticians, statisticians, computer scientists, where you know they can continue to interact with colleagues um, by you know virtually like we're doing but they can also do their sort of hardcore research at their desks at home, provided they don't have additional responsibilities like caregiving or homeschooling or things like that. I was just going to actually ask a question on that because yeah. I read somewhere just this week that there was a lot of concern that there'd be a particular impact on gender equity in science because yeah. a lot of the um, female yeah. researchers are being um, loaded with the responsibility of childcare and all the things that go on at home. Uh, are you seeing that? Is that a concern? Absolutely. I think that is a huge concern. Um, and, you know, it, so, so it both, I think it will both, um, impact the productivity of those researchers during the downtime where they haven't been able to come into their workplaces to do experimental research. So if you're a researcher like me, in many ways, the last three months has been a golden time. You know, I have less meetings. I'm able to spend more time reading and thinking about my science. You know, it, you know I can go for a run along the Merry Creek. My mental health's good. You know, it's it's wonderful, but for for somebody who's got three kids and they're trying to homeschool them, it's a nightmare. So their productivity, you know, their productivity understandably grinds to zero. Hmm. And then there's there's also the impact then on the their futures, because we you know we have a National Health and Medical Research Council grant round that that closes on June the tenth, which is the day Victorian schools go back. Oh. So you have this, you know, you have this situation and I've advocated really strongly that we just didn't have the grant round because I didn't believe it could be run in an equitable way. We now have this situation where there are lots of blokes around, yeah. around Victoria that don't have caring responsibilities, are able to put their grants in. They're spending extra time polishing and refining their grants and often the caregivers, and it's not just women, it's, you know, it's, it's a group of researchers in their sort of early 30s through to 40s, you know, mid-40s, often the ones that are on the shorter-term contracts that haven't really cemented their careers, that are dependent on that grant success, who are trying to juggle homeschooling or caring for elderly parents with trying to put a, a half-decent grant application in. When you have a success rate of of 10 to 12 percent you know you have to bring your top game to get a grant so it's just there's this sort of desperate unfairness because we placed a group of researchers with caring responsibilities in this invidious position i could never have imagined homeschooling my two boys and being able to do 
you know, any quality work at home. Can the NHMRC put in processes to address that, like, you know, taking into account those issues? Is, it, is there a process or is it, is it just something that has to stay in every, the back of everyone's mind or can there be practical steps to make sure that doesn't occur? That uh, look, I don't think there's, you know, beyond postponing the grant round or cancelling the grant round and finding some other way to get the money out to support researchers... I, I don't think it's easy for NH and MRC to adjust those grants in some ranking process. Mm. I think what Anne Kelso, the CEO of the NH and MRC, has done absolutely brilliantly well, and it was a really courageous decision when she took it uh, three or four years ago, was to say NH and MRC will keep some flexible money up their sleeves. And so as they, as they give grants out, there's normally a cutoff line where above the line you get the grant, below the line you don't get the grant. And what they've said is there's strategic use of this additional money to ensure that despite all the flaws in the system, there is some increase in gender equity. So they fund some female researchers mm -hmm. below the line, mm -hmm. but also things like Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander researchers where we have this desperate need to build capacity. They can then use strategic money that they've kept aside to get outcomes that we all think are important. And that was a, that was a hugely courageous thing to do. And hats off to Anne and her team at NH and MRC for doing that. So we may be able to do that again this year. Doug, Speaking of the NH and MRC, what percentage of grant applications this year do you think are going to have COVID in the title? <laughs> that's a, oh, look, that's a really interesting question. And, and, you know, there are always these trends and sometimes it's technology. You know, so, so 25 years ago, microarrays were, or 20 years ago, microarrays were all the all the rage and you know inevitably the last paragraph of everybody's grant had something about a microarray array and then after that it was you know different techniques next generation sequencing and single cell sequencing so these code patchwords would come into everybody's grants i'd like to see it would be interesting to see how many people try to weave you know COVID 19 into their melanoma grant so you know Grant MacArthur will be able to do that, no doubt. And he'll do it in, in an absolutely compelling way. Just for the listeners, so Grant MacArthur's the uh, CEO of the, of the Victorian Comprehensive Cancer Centre. Right. Is he your boss? Is he your boss, Steve? No, no I'm, I'm part of Peter Mac, but he's, uh, he's peripherally one of my thousands of bosses. bosses. I have so many people telling me what to do. Um, Let's, uh, before we finish sharp, let's just touch on some of the ups other upsides because, you know, it's been lots of talk of silver linings. Um, do you think, like, do you think more students will be interested in science? Do you think yeah. the role of experts in the community will take a little bit of a boost? Do you see many silver linings coming out of this? Uh, I hope there is. And, yeah, look, we, I think there will be greater interest in um, in research and in healthcare um, from from kids coming through school. And, you know, we've, we've received some lovely letters. We got this letter from a 10-year-old or 9 or 10-year-old primary school kid, judging by the handwriting. No, that was me. Look, I was going to say, it was Steve. Yeah. Well, it could have been a clinician. So one, one or the other, it was a 9-year-old primary school kid or a doctor. Um, it was just a lovely one that said, and it was written to one of our scientists, and it said, 
hey, I've been feeling a bit anxious about all of this COVID stuff, but when I saw you on the television, you know, it made me feel a lot better because I could see you were, you were trying to do your best. It was just really lovely. It looked like it had taken him a good couple of hours to ride and his mum had corrected it, so it was part of some homeschooling. It was really lovely. And I think we'll see that kids interested in clinical care, kids interested in in research coming through. And I think part of it is, you know, there's there's a sense that they seem better jobs when lots of other things are insecure. So the insecurity of research doesn't seem quite so bad when, you know, people are being laid off in every profession. So maybe it'll be like a double whammy. Doug, a bit of a personal question. How, how are you coping with the uncertainty and the anxiety around at the moment? Um, look, I, I, I've said this to, to staff and students and our donors and stakeholder groups. Being director of WeHi is... I reckon the best job in the country. You know, I've got super passionate staff aged from 1920 where kids come across from the uni in their first or second year and have their first research experience with us mm. all the way through to people like Jacques Miller who just won the Lasker Prize last year for his work discovering the function of the thymus which really informs in a lot of ways the way we think about infectious diseases, viral diseases, who's in his late 80s. And they, and they talk together and they work together and there are people at every age in between and they're all super smart, articulate, passionate people and, like, that keeps me just optimistic the whole time and, you know, I'm trying to look after myself, trying to exercise, so all good. Hey. A really lucky position to be in, a privileged position in every sense. You know, I can hear your enthusiasm in your Mm, voice. Um, It's fantastic, Doug. Um, We always end with the same question, and it's basically, what's something that you're doing now better than you were doing six months ago before the pandemic? If there's one thing you look at, and it doesn't have to, it can be any aspect, personal, work, whatever, is there something that you think you're doing better now than you were doing before? Uh, you know, there's some really glib answers like I, I, I don't think I ever did a Zoom or a Skype meeting using video. I hated it. I hated, I still hate seeing my face looking back at me, <laughs> but I've got used to it. So that's good. Um, do, what I, do what I do, Doug. Take off your glasses. That way you can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> I always find, I, I've turned into my mother who has her glasses sitting on her end of the nose. I, I've known that for the last 10 years. That, that scares me. Um, look, I think some other, just other other things, I, I think I'm much more aware of the underlying anxieties people have um, and, and how that is so, it's so different person to person and how it can colour their responses to sort of existential things as well. Um, and I think, you know, maybe I'm, although I'm slow to pick up on those things, I'm getting more sensitive to that granular, the granular differences between people. And I hope that makes me a little, a little bit better of a leader as I've sort of understood that a little bit more. I think that's so true. And, I, you know, it's, it's almost like the analogy of, you know, when a clinician goes through an illness themselves and sees it from the other side. We're currently, 
we're just seeing so much more of the personal side of everyone and getting a yeah. you know seeing how everyone reacts in a crisis gives us yeah. such a great insight into ourselves uh, how we react and the groups that we work with and the people that we interact with and we and I think in particular I like that aspect that sometimes we're seeing people who respond as much according to their anxieties as according to their knowledge and it's so hard to tease that out but uh, it's um, so fantastic to see your enthusiasm and to you know hear what's happening at the top end of town from a research perspective <laughs> well it is you know we high is the old, street of research it's the oldest and biggest research institute in Australia <laughs> I walk past it regularly on my walks because I'm at Peter Mac just down the road and and he genuflects I do. I always look upon it with envy, and I love speaking to you, Doug, the number of times I've spoken over the years. You've got such great insights. Thank you so much for joining us on Shrink the Virus. Thanks, Doug. Absolute pleasure. Good to see you, Steve, and lovely to meet you, Rob. Same here, mate. Cheers. Cheers. So that was Shrink the Virus for the 15th of May at uh, 3.57pm. Don't forget to tell your friends. family, neighbours to subscribe to the show. We've got a Facebook page called Shrink the Virus. We've also got an Instagram page. We also have an email called shrinkthevirus at gmail.com. Write us a review on your podcast catcher. Um, We just love reading reviews, so please do. Can I just also add, if you feel at any point that your emotional well-being was at risk, we discussed lots of uh, very emotional things during these podcasts, don't forget the important lines that you can connect to. Lifeline, 131114 Beyond Blue 1300 224 636 and the Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800 all three of which also have websites with fantastic information uh, Rob over to you for the 3 triple R stuff so as always thank you to everybody at triple R in particular Beck and Mia and Grace Elizabeth and Michael for making this happen Stephen And just the final thank you, of course, to Professor Doug Hilton, the uh, director at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute, our oldest and probably largest research institute in Australia. It's always a pleasure chatting to Doug, and we appreciate very much him making time to talk to us. Thanks, everyone, for listening to Shrink the Virus. We'll see you very soon. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.